Hey everyone, this is Kevin Eslin, and you are listening to another episode of Folk Stories. Today, my guest is Colm McCarthy, Senior Principal Engineer at Amazon Web Services, otherwise known as AWS. Now, if you're not familiar with AWS, it's a subsidiary of Amazon that provides cloud computing resources to individuals, companies, and governments. Otherwise, if you've heard this nebulous term cloud used in a technical context any time within the past 10 years, it would be a pretty good bet that AWS had something to do with it. If you are a customer of AWS, Comb has probably played a part in many of the foundational services that you use today. Some examples include Cloud53, CloudFront, and the application load balancer, just to name a few. If you contribute to open source, Comb was heavily involved in the original Apache server, and his more recent work include S2N, a C99 implementation of the TLS SSL protocol. If you like folk music, specifically of the Irish variety, Comb is part of several bands and plays both in Seattle and on the road. If you're concerned about privacy and human rights, Comb is the founding director of Digital Rights Island and active in many issues regarding privacy and immigration. I could go on, but I think suffice to say that Comb is a man of many talents and interests. I'm super excited to have Comb on the show today, not just because he's a great person to talk to, but because he was actually my very first guest in my internal podcast at Amazon, which I've been running for the past two years. Com was kind enough to come on over two years ago to talk to me inside Amazon, and now he's doing that same favor again outside of Amazon here on Folk Stories. One note about this talk is that it does get slightly technical at parts, and I suppose that's what happens when you leave two engineers to talk about engineering. I do think that the majority of this talk will be accessible to everyone, regardless of your technical background or lack thereof. And if you want further details or read up on any of the things we talk about, you should find all that and more in the show notes. As far as what we talk about, in today's episode, we'll go over what it's like to be a senior principal engineer at Amazon. We'll talk about why Comb went back to school despite having a good job and solid technical skills. And we'll talk about matters of music and activism. So without any further delay, I give you Comb McCarthy. Com, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. I figure we can start off by telling people a little bit about what you do. You're a principal engineer at Amazon with AWS. And I wonder, like, to people outside of Amazon, or even people inside Amazon, how do you describe your job? Like, what do you do? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, well, I, I try to describe my days, but then every day is different. Um, I, you know, I like to be a real engineer. I'm actually doing engineering and I write code. Like yesterday, I was writing code for a few hours, and uh, and I try to make time to actually do that. And then I also read other people's code and give them feedback. You know, do code reviews and so on. So like just very traditional, like hands-on engineering. But most most of my job is meetings, and you know whether that's one-on-one -on -one with people and helping them, you know, figure out their problems and uh, you know what they need help with or whether it's bigger meetings with teams um, or meetings with customers. I spend probably about 25% of my time meeting customers and asking them uh, you know, what their current experiences is, are, or what they would like to see in our products in the future. And then you know, I try to make sure that everything they're asking for will show up <laughs> in our products. Um, and then there's... Uh, you know, I go to conferences and I talk to other principal engineers and, you know, try to learn and figure out what's new and exciting and keep up to date and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I think the closest, like, maybe job that you see on TV <laughs> that um, people, people would be familiar with is maybe like a head chef, right, where uh, you're doing a certain amount of cooking, and you have to be good at it. You know, you still have to be able to scramble some eggs and make them taste great. Um, but really, you're you're kind of there in a supervisory and helpful role, and you're going from kitchen to kitchen, and you know, making sure that everything is as it should be, and then also trying to figure out what the 
men you should be for you know the next season or whatever and experimenting with things and all that kind of stuff um so it's a mixture of hands-on and then also like coaching and mentoring and all the all the things that come with that something else i'm thinking about for like a head chef in cuisines is there are certain dishes that come that are very topical or like for the time like maybe you know fall it's apple season and i think for or industry they also have certain things that um, I mean, right now it's machine learning and serverless, um, and I guess like adjusting towards the times. Um, certain things just seem to be more prominent at certain times. Yeah, it, there's definitely fashions and trends, and some come and go, and some come and stay. <laughs> you know, uh, you know. Earlier in my career, I worked at two companies that were heavily um, focused on peer-to-peer networking which was huge. It was the next big thing. It was like blockchain is now. Everybody was talking about how there's going to be these huge benefits of decentralized networking systems. And, you know, Skype did amazingly well as a, as a startup uh, built on top of peer-to-peer networking. Um, before that, there were, you know, file sharing networks and so on that made a huge impression and disrupted a lot of things. But really today, you don't see any peer-to-peer networking, right? That one just came and went. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely one of those fashions. But then others are here to stay. Like I think machine learning is here to stay. It's just going to get better and better. I think so too. And I'm, I wasn't planning on going here right now, but I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts about uh, decentralization because it just seems like yes, we had P2P and then it kind of went. And now, like you know, we both work at AWS, which is one of the largest centralized you know cloud services in the world. And now you see this resurgence with um, decentralized again with blockchains and everything else. Um, how do you see this playing out? Do you think will blockchain or like decentralized networks make another resurgence? Will it gain some sort of nominal status and just keep existing like that? But just like your personal thoughts on these oh things. man, um, so I, I have a I have a background in in cryptography, which kind of underpins blockchains, and so I um, I understand how they work at at a, at a pretty deep level, and maybe I understand them too well because to me. They just don't seem as magical as as they maybe seem to other people because I you know I can just see how it's all glued together, um, and so I I think about it at a much higher level and that makes me more skeptical. Like it, it just seems in these decentralized systems, people really want to be unburdened from the man. You know, they really they really want there to be no mediators or manipulators. In systems, and say in this case, financial systems, you know, for, for transacting, transacting money, because they just really resent that control, right? And um, and they think, you know, some great algorithm's going to come and save us all, and you know, remove corruptible human judgment from the equation. And it just doesn't seem credible, you know, because people still make mistakes, people still typo transactions and just put the wrong amounts in or the wrong destination in and so on. And you'd, you'd need people to go in and be able to fix things, you know. And the idea of systems that are co- completely incorruptible and um, totally unmanipulatable just seem extremely hard to use, you know, for especially for financial transactions. You know, if you if you just wire the wrong amount of money to the wrong account, like your bank will help you fix that, and that's pretty important, right? Because it would be terrifying if it just went into this blind system that you know you can do nothing about. So I'm really skeptical about that part, but they seem, you know, they seem useful for audit trails. You know, a good example is like if you're, you know, if you need to be be really certain that a certain set of actions occurred, including the mistakes and including the corrections for the mistake, then you know a blockchain or a signed ledger seems like a, a fine way to do that. But you know, the applications become a little bit more boring when you when you start doing that. But I don't know. We'll see. It seems like right now it's a wild west, and I feel like blockchain, it's, it's a powerful hammer, but people are just applying it to everything, and I think there are some very specific cases in which it would be really optimal, but I think it's like the early days of like Pets.com, where sure. you have this thing that can attract investor money, so you... Yeah, I, I, I recently kind of rethought a bit about uh, the financial side of this, like Bitcoin and the, the other uh, blockchain-based currencies, and you know, for a long time I've been thinking, man, those are just really bad things for society you know for for one thing they're draining a lot of energy and contributing to you know climate change and all those things and that's not good like it's that's really really bad and these people are basically getting scammed you know it's kind of like the 
tulip craze <laughs> uh, all over again. But then I kind of stepped back from it, and, I, and I, you know, maybe this is really cynical, but I kind of thought, well, you know, it takes all of those people who are, you know, can can be subverted into those schemes, and it takes them out of the, you know, general purpose financial system that the rest of us rely on, and has probably contributed to like really good market stability, right? Because if you think all of those people had been day trading on like the regular stock market, maybe we wouldn't have had as long a run of stability as we had now. So maybe it's actually a net positive. Yeah, maybe <laughs> the invisible hand of the market coming in blockchain style. Yeah, maybe it's useful as a distraction, right? Maybe it's useful to have this, you know, crazy system there to like, okay, well, all the crazy people can use it, but then, you know, we don't have to deal with them as much. I don't know. That's probably a terribly cynical take. <laughs> it's really hard to predict these things. And so I think your claim is as valid as anyone else's at this point. I want to go into some of the work that you've been doing. And so you've been at Amazon for a long while. And in that time, you've worked on uh, CloudFund, Cloud53, ELB, ALB, NLB. To people that maybe aren't technical or just plugged into the IT world, that might not mean a lot. But I think to startups or like to people who interact with AWS, these are like some of the fundamental underpinnings of you know, all our edge services. And I'm wondering, you know, do you have, when you look through the past projects you've done and look at future projects you do is there some sort of common theme or some something you look for that gets you involved in a project and sustains you through it um so there's definitely been you know projects i haven't been involved in and things i haven't done and when i think about it that way it's it's mostly just because i didn't think it was the best place for me at that time you know every single team i've been on or project i've gotten involved in uh the only way I decide is, look, in 30 years' time, when I look back, is that where I will have wanted to be? Like, will I, will I be able to have a big impact and will it be a really good use of my skills, right? And there are, um, you know, all sorts of teams and projects that are huge and impactful that would have been super exciting to be involved in, but I just felt like, well, that wouldn't have been a great use of my skills. I wouldn't have been very good at that like i had the opportunity to join the redshift team and like the redshift service is amazing it's this huge data analytics service that helps people drill into like business analytics and business intelligence queries in ways that just weren't possible before and it's i've seen it like change how really big companies work and that's pretty exciting but i would have been useless at that like it just wouldn't have been (laughs) you know in my wheelhouse or or great for my skill set um you know, so I've wanted to stretch myself each time. Like each time I go to a team, I, it's, there's things I don't know and there's things I have to learn from scratch. But I don't want it to be so completely different that it's going to be like really unproductive. You want a little bit of familiar land. There's yeah, you want to get out of your to. comfort zone yeah. and you want to be learning new things. But I think you don't want to be in the complete wild west and and like bringing very little with you. Um, so that's that's how I've decided. Um, and you know it's worked out. AWS is an insane and an insanely cool place to work. It's 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 crazy to be able to build these things and then watch them grow so quickly. When you look at this, your core competencies or like which you do bring to the table, where do you think that falls in? You mentioned cryptography, this networking. Like, how would you describe those? Sure. So I I have a really unusual kind of set of skills that came together, and it's just mind-blowingly fortunate to me that those turned out to be, you know, very useful for for building clouds. Uh, I spent 10 years as a network engineer. My first, like, professional job out of college was as a network engineer, and I was, like, logging into Cisco and Juniper routers and switches and typing in commands and um, spent a lot of time on my knees labeling cables. (laughs) That was a pretty big part of my job. (laughs) And just literally, like, plugging things in and getting everything working. Um, and then I also got involved in the Apache open source projects pretty early because we had to build uh, a web server and we didn't really have any budget and it had to be a really, really fast web server because we were hosting um, huge amounts of downloads and so on. So I just got involved in the project to help make it faster. And so that taught me how to build um, like servers and distributed systems. Um, and I also got involved in 
in cryptography for similar reasons, just because we um, we needed it to be fast, and so I started working on optimizing it. And these were all just like necessities. Like I just needed to do them for our job. We were, we had a very small uh, place when I joined. We were 18 people. This is my first job, a company called HEANET. But we serviced like all of Ireland, where I'm from, um, in terms of networking needs. Uh, and so we were pretty scrappy and just always trying to make things work. Um, and then it turned out, right, that, you know, 10 years later, people start building these clouds. And it turns out, well, people who know networking in depth, like down to the wire level of protocols, who can also code, <laughs> who, who also understand um, distributed systems and cryptography, are, were just very rare. You know, they're just people who had worked at ISPs and people who had worked uh, um at places like that, and and there just weren't so many of them, and so it's kind of like having a golden ticket, where just like totally by chance, you know, you end up having this skill set that ends up being really useful, and it's it's kind of like being, you know, imagine before railways came along, right, and you're like the one guy who knew how to you know mill steel in a straight line that can also curve over the, the earth and so on, and like five years before that, it was a useless skill, it was maybe niche and like it was used occasionally in in like building some boats or putting something and and then like 10 years later you find yourself like building railroads that cross continents right and it's kind of like that yeah and i think it's also a really good analogy because i mean the things you're doing in the networking space are that it's you know bringing information connecting the world Mm -hmm. yeah it's also awful uh networking um and and cryptography and security are um just really awful niches to be in and, and they're are, they're just full of acronyms um you know if you go to a meeting with a, with a bunch of network engineers it will just be acronym acronym you, you will have uh, you know very very tentative you know grappling holes to try to figure out what is going on if you're a newcomer in that environment like it's really awful you know it's 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 not very accessible and so you kind of have to have been building things and learning it all incrementally. Yeah, I think learning the acronyms, it took me the better part of like my first year at Amazon and then also continuing until past, like I'm still learning new acronyms today. Not just networking, but I feel like or feel in general, but networking is, is a specifically bad case of this. Yeah, and we're, we're adding to it, right? Like every, <laughs> every second AWS service is an acronym. Yeah, I feel bad because um, I indirectly contributed to this because when I was in the Elastic Load Balancing team, I was part of the uh, people that were responsible for the uh, low balance and capacity unit. <laughs> and I still feel conflicted about that because while I do feel like it's an accurate way of you know, measuring usage, it's introducing yet another abstraction. And I'm sure nobody like means to like, you know, add more abstractions, but like you look back at it and you realize it's like a hundred new things you've collectively introduced. Yeah. So one thing I noticed in your background is that you went back to school um, when you were working at another company called Joost um, to get a degree. And I'm wondering, you know, in, especially in tech, this this self, like, hacker pride and, like, I dropped out of school and I did not do formal training. And it seems like you were doing pretty well at the time. You contributed to Apache. You were, like, you had a well-honed set of skills. What made you decide to go back to school? Oh, man. All right, well, so I, I had I'd gone to university, you know, straight out of school when I was 18. I, I went and studied applied physics um, and, you know, did okay at that, did a few years of that, but ended up dropping out. And um, that was for a mix of reasons, you know, looking back. Um, it didn't really suit me. You know, I don't think I was ever going to end up in a physics laboratory <laughs> doing, you know, raw basic science or anything like that. Um, and the best modules I did, you know, the ones I did really well at were, were all computing. <laughs> you know, we, we had to do C programming and we had to do, uh, like, robotic programming and a bunch of things as part of the degree. And I did really, really well at those. And I did kind of mediocre at everything else. And then I um, just ended up, you know, through an internship, getting a job at this company, HGANet, where I ended up working full time and um, doing lots of computing type things. And that was going really well. Um, and then it got to 2001, 2002, and the economy crashed, and uh, unemployment surged in Ireland. And I was like, you know, I have a good job right now. Uh, this does not make a whole lot of sense uh, for me to go back. I did not have a lot of financial stability in my life. You know, just was I only had my income, and 
Um, you know, my parents wouldn't have been able to support me or anything like that. Uh, and so that's what I felt was right for me at that time. And so I just kept at that. And then a few years later decided, but I still, like, you know, want the piece of paper. <laughs> uh, I want to get a degree. It was also important for my parents. Um, you know, nobody in my family, in my entire extended family, had ever gone to university. You know, I'm from a pretty poor part of Dublin. And, um, and like, I just wanted to achieve that. And then I also felt like there probably would be things I would learn, you know, things that I would learn more formally than just, you know, constantly DIYing it. Um, and so I went to evening school. I went to Trinity College in Dublin, and I did um, an evening course in, in computer science, um, which, you know, meant for a, a large number of years, I like, I was working full-time, and then I was going every evening and putting in another, like, four or five hours of either, you know, studies or lectures or projects or whatever. Um, and then midway through that, I, I got this other job at Juice, which you mentioned, which was kind of kind of a sister company of Skype, same founders. Uh, we were kind of a Hulu of its day. We did video streaming using peer-to-peer and so on. Um, but my job was in the Netherlands, so I, I, I took a year out and went and, and moved to the Netherlands to do that job. Um, didn't want to take more than a year out, so I ended up finishing the degree just commuting from the Netherlands. I just would, would basically stay in the Netherlands three days a week and then go back to Dublin four days a week and did that for a while. And I was kind of crazy looking back, and I didn't really have a life. Um, but it ended up mattering. Like I got, I got that degree, and um, without that degree, I would not probably have been able to move to the U.S. or really you know, work at Amazon Web Services in, in Seattle just because of you know, the U.S. visa process. It would have been would have been far harder um, for me to to get a visa to move here without you know piece of paper qualifications. So it really made a, a huge difference in my career. It was well worth doing. So a couple of things on what you just said. First, like living in the Netherlands and then going to school in Ireland. Um, I mean, even if you didn't have a full time job, that seems just like and crazy commute. When you were looking at that, did you think at some point? Like, maybe this isn't worth it. Maybe I should just stick to my job. Or maybe I should just, like, do this go out. Was it, did you reach that conclusion right away? Like, I'm just going to commute? Or was there some deliberation? Um, it didn't, I, I didn't really think about it too much. It seemed normal to me. Um, so for, for starters, you know, there's Schiphol and Amsterdam's a great airport. And there's many flights a day. So getting to Dublin was, was no problem. You know, just booking a flight and, and getting on. And I would book them you know, far in advance. They work out pretty cheap, you know, and I'd book a bunch of them. Um, um, my girlfriend at the time, she was doing the same thing. You know, she was also from Ireland and she worked for an aviation uh, company and they were they had a branch in Amsterdam where she was working. Were you guys so anomaly? I just want to know, like, <laughs> does everybody do this? Or, like, you, you guys know, are I just, don't know. It's just didn't, it didn't seem that crazy to me. It did, uh, one, you know, one kind of funny thing about it was, uh, so, I'm, like I said, I'm from a pretty poor part of Dublin. I'm from Ballyfermot. It's got about 90% unemployment, um, or it did at the time. It, it had... Um, you know, very like there were gangs and 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 drug problems and and shootings and so on, and so when you're traveling as a single guy from Amsterdam to Dublin with an address in Ballyfermot every week with a with a with just a backpack and no check-in <laughs> luggage, that tends to flag some you know suspicion on the the part of the police and the customs authorities. So I got stopped three or four times, and they would search everything, and you know they assumed I was running drugs or something between, <laughs> between these places, which I was not. You know, I was the most boring person in the world just trying to finish a computer science degree. But that was that was really the only kind of wriggle. That sounds like a crazy time. And, you know, you mentioned how getting a degree was really instrumental in you getting a visa to the States. I'm wondering, though, outside of, you know, the logistical requirement, what else, or if anything, did you get from going through that degree? Is that something you would recommend now to people who have gone through the industry to get that formal degree? Like, what did you get out of it that you didn't have before? Yeah, so I, I definitely got things out of it. So, um, you know, it... It gave me a second chance at really improving uh, my mathematics, in particular, right? So, um, you know, when I did when I did math in in when I, when we were doing applied physics, you know, I struggled. 
uh, I, I mean, I passed my, my courses, but I, I, I struggled and it never really clicked for me. You know, it was, you know, we would be doing things like, you know, deriving the ideal gas laws from like the basic theorems of statistics. And like, I would just yawn. <laughs> like, it just doesn't get me up in the morning. But doing, you know, more number theory and algebra and the kinds of things that come up in, in computer science, I just found a lot more interesting and a lot more practical and turned out to be really, really useful and, and improved my skills a lot. Um, there were It exposed me to things in computing I never would have touched before. Like we had graphics modules and I learned about quaternions and uh, all of these Hamiltonian equations and things like that that I never would have touched. And that was, that was really useful. And there were, um, you know, things even now that I look back on that I, I still find super useful like really understanding information theory and like Shannon's law and so on like that I just probably never would have gotten into on my own it just never would have come up when you're just plugging routers and switches in together and so on on the other hand you know there were things that were like a total waste of time you know I remember we did this module on professional programming or like it was supposed to teach us what programming in the real world was like you know and we we did we'd learn about agile and we'd learn about all these things and and also uml who even uses uml and i've never seen that <laughs> actually be used in a program I, I i see all these books for it but like i've personally not used it and yeah i've not seen it it was and you know it it taught us that hey a huge percentage of big software projects are abandoned and all of this kind of stuff but it didn't really teach us how to avoid that <laughs> you know and <laughs> that didn't seem as useful but i'm still i would definitely recommend it to people got it um something i think uh, my school was like this where it was really good at teaching you theory so understanding for example like databases um like normalizing data schemas or like operating systems and just like um major components but it's very light on well industrial applications and i look at especially in aws like we do tons of like more wire level or like operation level tasks where um, DevOps is key. And I find that it's really hard to find like a good DevOps engineer, especially out of college. And as far as I'm aware of, it's not something that I've ever learned in school, but more something that, okay, I got paged at midnight, I need to SSH into the system, grab the logs, aux something, said something, do these things. And wanting, you know, for like DevOps, for example, like is that something that is taught in schools or like, do you just find that this is something that people learn on the job? Um, so we, we definitely teach it on the job, and we don't um, expect it of people coming in, right? If we, have, if we have a new college hire, the way it works at Amazon, at least you come in as an SD1, um, and it's not, re- it's not at all expected that you know any of that, and, and kind of your role as an SD1 is to learn all that, right, and to become a self-sufficient, um, like, productive uh, programmer. So. And... Um, it's. I, I'm not sure it should be taught, you know, at universities because so many companies. I've visited so many customers do it do it differently, um, and in equally valid ways. You know, even at Amazon, we have teams that do it differently. You know, we uh, we we we've had a DevOps culture for a long time before it was called DevOps, um, but teams still differ on just how much Dev they do versus how much Ops. And, um, you know, the same split isn't for everyone. Some teams also have dedicated systems engineers who do a bit more ops than dev and so on. And so the mix has to be able to adapt. We also have teams that are more like a biz dev ops, you know, where the, the team is also doing a certain amount of business development and figuring out what products should look like and what the prices should be and all these kind of things. And that's a whole other skill set. And uh, unless you go do an MBA as well, you're, you're very unlikely to get that in in at university as well. Joining industry, something that you learn very quickly is, I think it's really easy to think of like writing software as you write software and then it's out and then you're done. But then finding like the other 80% of like maintaining it, automating it, being able to upgrade it, being able to patch it, being able to service it. You're showing a bias that maybe um, is something I try to rail against, which is I, I, I just don't think of code or systems that way. Like I just don't think of our... You see a lot of developers who come in and they, they think it's the code in an editor. You know, they open Eclipse or whatever it is, and, like, that's the thing they work on. They, it's, 
very literate. You know, they've they've got these lines of code in an editor, and that's what the system is. And they want it to be beautiful and elegant, <laughs> and uh, and and great. But that's not the system. You know, the system is the live running thing, and it's in symbiosis with the people who are using it. And it will be different on Monday than it was on Sunday. You know, you, often by a lot. You know, because there's a lot more people using it on Monday than on Sunday. And its real-world characteristics are, they vary all the time, you know, depending on the hardware you're on, depending on the geographic location it's in, depending on the mix and spread of traffic that day. And that's the system, right? And so for me, I'm like glued to graphs and logs. You know, I have 20 tabs open at any given time with different dashboards, and I'm just looking at the numbers, and I'm seeing, getting a feel for how the system is used and what it's really like in the real world. And I'm reading logs, right? And I'm looking at what's actually happening, what what do things go on? And I care less about the code. You know, the code I see is very replaceable. But I can't really change that human input, right? That's what's, that's to me the bit that's, that I have to adapt to. Um, and so that's how I think about systems. Yeah, I totally agree. I think having done enough log dives and looked at graphs and metrics, you realize like these systems are, like living, breathing beasts that have temperaments and certain quirky behaviors. I'm wondering, as you've progressed in your engineering career and designed different systems in different times, have how have your thoughts about engineering, if it has like changed? Like one example, you know, is this idea of like initially when I started off, I thought, okay, like code, it's something you write, and then that's like the majority of the work. But then you realize that's actually like a negligible part of the work, like everything else comes after. Um, so that's something that I personally have learned um, through my time here. And I'm wondering over the past, you know, a couple of decades, like what what have been the major shifts in any of your thinking about these systems? So so before I joined Amazon Web Services, um, and I really wanted to get in, you know, it's, it's a place I really wanted to work. I, I thought that it would kind of be like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? That I would get in and there would be, oh my God, all these amazing secrets, you know, things that have been held back from me. And like, this is how they do it. You know, they, they had shipped S3 before I joined and I looked at S3 and I was like, that's insane. Like a crazy big system. How, how can you possibly build something like that? And I was super excited to get in the door and like learn all the tricks. And, <laughs> and uh, I learned there really aren't any tricks. <laughs> um, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of mundane. <laughs> but also profound in that it, it's all just insane levels of attention to detail and, um, you know, just being really rigorous and um, and kind of relentless about making sure that, like, every error case is checked, all of this stuff. And it taught me that that, you know, fastidiousness is, is kind of indispensable, right? It's, like, that's what makes the difference. And then the the real tricks and tips I learned about you know, how to make systems scale or be super um, reliable and so on. They, they were not complex al- algorithms. They were not, you know, the Philosopher's Stone or anything like that. They were, they were just so simple, you know, like just stuff like the way we use availability zones, right? Which to the outside world, people realize that, well, we have these things called availability zones and they each have their own power source and they each have their own networks. And so they, they shouldn't fail at the same time, right? And that's how we can make a, a guarantee that says, well, if you're using two availability zones, two or more, you're, you're going to be good, right? Great. But then when I joined, I realized, oh, no, it goes much, much deeper than that. It's like, no, we're not even going to deploy software to more than one availability zone at a time. And in fact, like we're going to look at somebody with like a really strange look if they even suggest it <laughs> like it's going to go it's going to go that deep um because it takes that attention to detail to really be able to hold it up and um you know it taught me that it's much more of a way of life than tricks or tips or anything that i'm going to find in a book and um and that's you know so now when i think about engineering you know it's when i'm thinking about teams and services and how uh, reliable they're going to be um i i i much more focus on whether you know the people are working together in a healthy way and whether they are um have that attention to detail and paranoia 
and and helping them get there than I am about you know scrutinizing particular pieces of code or anything like that. It reminds me of um, way back in the day I used to take drawing lessons, and we would do portraits. And something that I would always have trouble with is drawing hair, like people's hair or like the branches of trees. And I always thought there was like some sort of trick, some sort of secret where like if you do this and it becomes really easy. And it turns out that actually no, like you just have to draw every single like strand of hair. It's a really meticulous attention to detail, but there's no secret. It's just that you really just have to get in and do the work. And I think that's also something that I've seen in that we do at AWS. It's like what you said. Like there isn't really a secret. It's just this attention. Yeah, but I also think that story illustrates that you have to be prepared to suck at things, right, for a long period of time. Like if if you're not willing to go through that phase where you're just not good at it for quite a while. <laughs> oh yeah. That's, I've been through yeah. and then get better and better. You know, I in I have met staggeringly few like born geniuses, like people who were just incredibly incisive and, and like amazing experts like from a very young age or anything like that. It's you know, most of us like just have to suck <laughs> for quite a while and eventually get better and better and better at it. I think there's something humbling or level setting about that experience though, because you know like this is a path that everyone goes through. Yeah. It is. And um it's it's very, very hard to find any shortcuts around it. Uh I, I wish I could. I think um it was Andy Jassy that said there's no compression algorithm for experience. Um and yeah, it's I think part of maybe something I found that helps is like reading books and to me that's always been like well you can't live multiple lifetimes but you can read you know the experiences of multiple lifetimes but it's still like that difference between reading about it knowing about it and actually living it and believing it and it's yeah, quite different yeah it's an example I use is like every smoker knows that smoking is bad for them but they continue to do it because it's not real like um yeah. Something that you also just mentioned is like now when you work with teams, you, you know, maybe it's not any particular code, but like how that team works. Is it a healthy team? And I'm wondering, what do you, how do you tell if it's a healthy team? What do you look for? Um, well, I'll give you a very Amazon focused answer because that's where I work. But the, the first time I look, first thing I look for is uh, do they know their customers? Right. And, our, um, we're really good at that with the external-facing services. So in general, like if, if, if a team operates an external-facing service, they almost certainly know their customers. It's pretty much impossible not to, right? <laughs> um, but sometimes uh, when we have teams that are like a few layers removed from that, um, they maybe don't know who all their customers internally are. Because at Amazon, internally, we were a service-oriented architecture. You know, you can just spin up a service, and then lots of other teams can use it. And you may not know who they are. They just go use it, right? Yeah, it could be the retail website, but, and now you're in the critical path. Yeah, could be, right? And um, and that's the idea. We want them to use it. But uh, it, it um, so you can sometimes get in these situations where the team's kind of lost track of who's actually using it, and they don't have that feedback loop where they're actually talking to their customers. And so, um, you know, if we're in that situation, first thing we'll do is is we'll say, okay, we got to have our own, um, you know, we we got to have our own meeting with all these customers. We gotta we gotta find out who they are, and we gotta like let's start looking for logs. Let's identify who they are, and let's start talking to them and see if they have any thoughts on how we're doing. Right, so that's the most important thing, um, because if you know our customers are unhappy, then we're just not going to be in business for very long. Um, so that's that's the biggest thing. And then the second thing is, um, are they fearless? Right, in the sense of like, um, it should be a healthy, positive environment where people can always express concerns. There's no stupid idea, like, and um, and people feel a sense of of comfort and collegiality, right? And not conflict and enmity or anything like that, right? That it's uh, a, a good environment to express fears. And then that that fearlessness can also translate into taking risks, right? That the team is willing to push boundaries and try things that haven't been done before and, and make a few bets, you know, and be willing to fail, right? And and those are, those are the, the two main things. Uh, and then there's all sorts of, you know, just 
nitty day-to-day things. Got it. When uh, Speaking of day-to-day, I know that something that you've been really good about doing is still writing code, which I've talked to a bunch of principal engineers, and I find that that's not usually the case. Like, that's not the norm. It's very easy to get caught up in these more bigger-level decisions. And I'm wondering, well, two things. It's like One is, how do you manage to continue writing code? Um, and two is like, where do you, like, how important is it to you? Like, do you think that, um, I guess, like, as a head chef, like, is this your way of like continuing to like cook? And like, if you didn't write code, do you think you would still be um, as effective? Sure. So, um, a few parts of that. So, uh, it isn't. There are principal engineers who have kind of gotten into position of they're they are helping teams mostly through meetings and they're they're providing roadmap guidance and they're talking to customers and so on, but they're not um, actually writing code. And a part of that is principal engineers are such busy people and their time is divided into these like little 30-minute segments and they're going from one thing to the next um, that it can be dangerous, right? Like if, you, if, if the team ends up blocked on the code you're meant to be writing, they can be left waiting quite a while because you might be in, suddenly interrupted and dragged away on some crisis or you know, whatever and you might not get back to that for like three or four weeks and that's, that's just not going to work in, in most you know, teams' development cycles. Um, so it's, it's hard to integrate. So the key I found is to work on projects that are impactful, right, that are going to be um, big and impactful and technically deep and, and, um, and, and really resonate and the people can learn from, but aren't in the day-to-day critical path, right? Like I'm not signing up for sprint tasks that are like ship, shipping the next critical feature. That's generally not what I'm doing. Maybe I should, but that's, that's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is I'm writing the bigger libraries or the core systems that we use. So one, for example, is our, our open source SSL and TLS implementation called um, S2N. And uh, I'm still like the lead author for that. I still wrote most of the code. And that's, you know, I work on it as I can, and I, I still get to work on it most weeks. But if I don't work on it for a week or two, it's not like, you know, we're not going to ship some big major feature or something like that. It just doesn't matter too much. And then in terms of importance, I am, I'm like a bottom-up kind of person. I'm, I'm kind of anarchic by nature, and I don't really like hierarchy and, and top-down you know, organizational structure. Thankfully, that's not too uncommon at, at Amazon, so we... Uh, we we facilitate that, which is good. But so I always wor- want to work from the bottom up, right? I want to like get to the people who are actually writing code and and doing the real productive work. And I just feel like I wouldn't be able to earn their respect if if I couldn't code and wasn't like able to show like I know what I'm talking about. And um, you know, it's kind of like the head chef who goes in and like if they can't make some scrambled eggs, right? Like it's it's just not going to work, you know. Um, a friend's father, he's actually uh, a consultant uh, doctor in, in emergency medicine, and he ran, like, the emergency department for a really big hospital. But, you know, a certain amount of his time, he was just, like, suturing people up and doing, like, really mundane day-to-day things, you know, because that's just what was he needed to do that day because he did a certain amount of actual work. And I think that's very effective because keeps your skill set sharp and it shows everybody you really know what you're doing and talking about yeah and i think it also it keeps your ears to the ground it keeps you connected you know the pain that everyone else is going through or like what the process is still like today yeah and also i guess at amazon web services like most of our customers they're very technical and they code right and so you 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 gotta stay with it yeah uh, it's definitely one of the multiple things but one of the things i really like is that having a technical customer base working with technical people it's you can we speak from the same worldview which is nice that's not always the case in the places that i've worked in yeah and it's it's not always the case here too we do have you know we do have customers for whom it is a tiny percent of their overall budget you know they're like a steel mill or something you know and uh, and they're just getting onto cloud because they want all the the agility benefits and so on that that it brings rather than having to build their own data centers. But even then, generally the people you're talking to are like the IT department, right? And they're the um, the kind of technical people. So I want to transition a little bit to something that is not IT related. Well, 
stop that. that it's a little bit IT related, but peripherally. Um, something I noticed is that you're very active in local rights or like different advocacy groups. And one thing I noticed is you started the digital rights advocacy group in Ireland. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. What you know? What were the ideas or motives behind starting it, and what you guys are doing? Sure. Um, well, I I grew up in a pretty activist family. <laughs> you know, my my parents have both been very active in a lot of like community organizations and different social causes. Um, my dad was super involved in like the Irish League of Credit Unions and and the local credit union and stuff like that. And I and I you know we went on marches and protests even as a kid and I was always kind of you know just of that mindset that you know if you want if you want good things in the world that's just part of what it takes and um, there there was an effort to introduce electronic voting in Ireland uh, in the uh, late nineties early two thousands and um, they did some very small scale trials you know one or two constituencies and then immediately wanted to ramp it up and introduce it to the whole country. And I happened to take a look at that because I was interested. I'm like, how does that work? I'm like, that can't be secure. And I remember thinking about it for like an hour once and sitting down and I'm like, how could I possibly secure a system like that? And I'm like, oh, well, I'd have it print a paper ballot and I would make sure that they counted the paper ballots and I'd make sure the voter looked at the paper ballot. And that way, all the problems of having to trust a machine that you can't actually see inside, you know, go away. Right, so I'm like, oh, okay, that's what they're doing, easy. And, and then I happened to read a technical report about the system like six months later, and I'm like, it doesn't do that. <laughs> it's not secure. <laughs> Actually, I could totally hack this system and just have it record any votes I wanted. Um, that's crazy. And like, you know, me as an 18 year old, it took me an hour to figure out how to secure this thing, and like, these people haven't done any of this. It just, I was outraged, it drove me crazy. And, um, and a friend of mine had started uh, um, doing some postgraduate research on this, and she similarly was very outraged. and um, And she started this group, Irish Citizens for Trustworthy Voting, and I got involved, and um, and we started like kind of professionalizing it, and we became a lobbying organization, and we did all sorts of press releases and interviews and all the kind of stuff, and it was very effective. Um, through that, the government had to start a commission and. Commission investigated it, found it wasn't secure, and the whole thing was abandoned. Um, and it and it was um, it was it was pretty cool to do. And it was out of that that I was asked to join, asked to be one of the founders for um, Digital Rights Ireland, which is kind of like an EFF uh, for Ireland. Um, you know, the other founders mostly came from a legal background, and um, you know. Knew 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 their stuff about you know how to how to influence the law and how to make changes, but it was also useful to have some technical people there, and it's worked steadily on uh, a lot of uh, privacy and data retention issues in Ireland for quite a while now. It's been pretty effective. It's it's achieved quite a bit of change, and uh, Ireland's a good place to do it. You know, there's a lot of a lot of information being stored in Ireland, and it's it's good to make sure that people's privacy is being respected. I think it's. Um easy to look at like different government policies and especially um, technical policies because usually governments are not quite up to date on those and look at it and say like well this seems stupid but I don't know what I'm going to do about it maybe I'll write to my local congressperson or I don't know Um, what do you think makes for effective advocacy and what is something that people who don't necessarily have any background in that or maybe not even the time for that like what should people do what can people do oh um if you really want to be effective it it does take a lot of time and and effort yeah this might be like the same thing as aws where there's no magic there's i i don't know shortcuts but what i i do see common misses or common mistakes that people make you see a lot of um like influencing campaigns or people who are trying to achieve change who, who essentially just, you know, manifest outrage. And they, they just, they have their Twitter campaigns or they have their, you know, Facebook campaigns or whatever, or they, they have huge um, signature campaigns. and But they're just expressing a position and they're just like... And, I you know, that has a certain amount of effect. It, like, establishes... 
where a certain percentage of the population are on an issue and, and creates a little pressure in that way and sometimes it can translate into votes and legislators care and so on. But I, I don't think it's particularly effective. In my in my experience, it's it's much more effective um, when you focus on you find decision makers you can actually influence, like people who can actually make or take a decision that will make a difference in this arena, and then study their needs. What is it they need, right? Like, do they need a safety net or more? Um, context in which to be able to change their mind or make make a change in position and how do you start creating that, right? And so a lot of the most effective lobbying and change influencing that I've done has all been behind scenes and it's all been um, focused on, you know, getting those people into a place uh, where, where they could make the, the change that, you know, we, we felt was best. Um, and sometimes that's you know, sometimes that's writing like articles in in the publications they read to help influence them, but not necessarily the broader public, right? Or sometimes that's like, well, if you want them to take a position, just like writing a speech for them, <laughs> you know, because they don't have speechwriters and they don't have the time to do it. But if you give them something, it'll suddenly become part of their platform, purely due to like, you know, they, they were always kind of leaning that way. But you can really strengthen it by by basically doing some free work for them and so on which is uh tremendously effective but you know a lot of it's intractable people are just in the positions they're in and you kind of have to wait for <laughs> those positions to change i'll give like one one example when when um when the travel ban was first implemented uh here uh in the u.s which you know I kind of felt very viscerally as an immigrant, even though I'm not from, you know, a majority Muslim country or or any of the countries that were impacted. It just felt very scary to me that, you know, I could show up at an airport and suddenly not be allowed in or something like that because they had, you know, impacted even green card holders. And I have a green card and, you know, I rely on that to be able to live and work here and, you know, have a drink with my friends. All these things depend on me having, you know, a valid green card. And it's scary, the idea that it could just just disappear. Um, and, um, like, rather than try to change any political minds or anything like that, because it just doesn't seem effective to me at this point, um, uh, I, I decided to, you know, help out and donate money to the, the local immigrant rights organization, who basically translate that money into lawyers going and helping these people and case by case, you know, um, like resolving or, or, or doing as much as they can on things. And I feel like that that's more effective in that particular case. Yeah, this is the bottom step, like boots on the ground, ha- helping people like actual families and or individuals. Yeah. And, you know, I just felt a certain amount of responsibility towards it because... Like as far as I'm concerned, all us immigrants are in the same boat, <laughs> and I'm a three-time immigrant. You know, I've been in a few different countries at this point, so I want to want to express some solidarity. Yeah, uh, definitely, and um, I think I've yeah, I've seen the campaigns you've had like on Twitter and elsewhere, and I th- think it's really great that you're doing that. It's not easy to do, especially because you're doing all these other things as well. I just feel like it's important. Yeah, and on the topic of other things that you're doing, another thing that you're also doing because you don't have enough to do is uh, um, you have a band um, and you do Irish folk music and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that like and what you how you guys got started and what you guys do today sure so I wouldn't say I have a band I, would, I play in a few bands but I wouldn't say any of them are mine and I um, I always always rubs me the wrong way when people say they have a band or it's my band it's like that just doesn't seem yeah, thanks, for the, thanks for the correction. You are in multiple <laughs> bands. Um, but the, um, so I've always played music. Um, you know, since a young age, I went to a, a school that's very musical. And I learned fiddle or, or violin when I was growing up, and then guitar later, and then more instruments later, which I, I taught myself. Um, again, I sucked for a very long period of time. <laughs> you know, like, just, like, I was not one of these, like, oh my god amazing natural talent and like my young teenage years or something like i just sucked no justin bieber moment no 
Um, so really, really had to just keep at it. But you know, I find it really relaxing to sit at home and just like play guitar for an hour or two, no problem. Like it's so, you just get better when when you keep doing that. And then I've played Irish music, like Irish folk music. Um, and I, you know, I'd, I'd say at this point I'm pretty good. Like I could, I could probably play in in at almost any level and any kind of any kind of band. And I I regularly play like big festivals and 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 big venues and so on. And it's 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 really good fun. But um, it's there's a real like shortage of Irish folk musicians in the U.S. Right? It's not like it's we're teaming over with them. It's a pretty small community, so it's. It's also pretty easy to play at that level when it's such a small community. Um, but, you know, just through playing with people, going to festivals, I would meet people and we'd figure, hey, let's record an album or let's uh, let's form a little band that plays at some festivals and then we just stick with the ones that work. You know, I've been in more bands that ultimately disbanded and didn't work than, than the ones that stuck around. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's just really good fun. It's a great way to see the world. You know, I've gotten to places that I just never would have seen any other way, you know, especially just lots of rural communities and places where there's festivals and state fairs and all these kind of things that I just could never imagine of would have visited, you know, otherwise. Like I've been in, I was in Bella Coola a few years ago, which is this tiny town, like population 900 in Northern British Columbia, you know, just thousands of miles from anything else. And is staggeringly beautiful very hard to get to <laughs> and like what other way would i visited there other than i was playing a music festival so what kind of crowds do you usually play in is it um like these small town settings are there irish communities um who um yeah if you know people are interested in irish folk music like where do they go oh man i've played all sorts of venues and concerts everything from like you know shows where one or two people showed up <laughs> like really big festival stages that have like an audience of thousands um we'll we'll, we'll say yes to everything you know um but typically it's it's typically it's like 50 to 100 person kind of scale shows at either somebody's house like for a house concert or smallish venues and then festivals like weekend festivals there's a pretty good circuit of festivals in canada and the midwest and um, the northeast of the U.S. that you can play. And when you are, um, you mentioned like sometimes you get together with people and put, you know, put out an album. How, what is your songwriting process? Do you get inspired by events, by other, by um, stories, by other songs, or what is that process like for you? Oh man, um, so I always write the melodies first. I'm usually pretty good at writing melodies, and I always generally have more melodies on the go than I have words. P much worse at coming up with the words. And um, if there's any budding lyricists out there, get in touch. And um, and um, so, so I'll start with that. And then the words, like they, I mean, some of them are directly from personal experiences. I had an ex-girlfriend die, and I, I wrote a song for her. It was pretty straight, you know, like... Mm. direct correlation um i uh, i wrote another song about um you know being on the sea based on something that had happened to me out there mm. and um but most of them they're just whatever pops into your head who can know like how do i like think of people who write poetry or make great art like who knows where that comes from like that's one of the deepest philosophical mysteries in life right and i you know it rubs me the wrong way when people claim too much ownership over invention or innovation or art. Like to me, a lot of it's discovered because we just really don't know where it comes from. I um, I took a creative writing course when I was in college, and they mentioned this writer whose name I now forget. I think it was it wasn't Anne Lamont, but someone like her, and she had this process where she would have ideas that would come in her head, and she would have talks with her muse where she would say, I see that you're giving me an idea, but I don't have a notepad right now, so you got to wait an hour until I get home. Until, and this idea that like ideas exist in the world and then they come in and inhabit people for a brief period of time. And yeah, that's how I feel. I mean, it, it might seem kind of religious or something, but that 
like I don't understand how these things pop into my head or the words come about. Um, you know, there's things that you can do to try to spark creativity, right? Like that process or a classic one of like introducing constraints. You know, I sat, one of the songs that I wrote, I sat down as an exercise. I'm like, I'm going to write a country song. I've never written a country song. I'm going to write a country song because I like country music. So why not? And uh, so I started and I, you know, started playing guitar, kind of a country style. And I ended up writing a completely different song. <laughs> it's not a country song. Uh, it's not quite a protest song, but it actually ended up being about um, Occupy in New York, which uh, I happened to be there. And um, it was, it, it's like this postcard song that just describes the scene. Um, and it's one, one of my favorite songs that I've written. Came about from sitting down and trying to write a country song. But I, I guess I failed, but <laughs> I also succeeded. Yeah, you, you got something, you made something out else out of it. Um, Colm, we're trying to go into the end of the interview, and so I'm going to move to my closing questions. And my first question is um, about inspiration, and what is something that has recently inspired you? This could be a song, it could be an event, it could be something you've seen others done, or something in current events. Maybe that's harder to pull from, but... Um. So I don't know if it counts as recent because I guess it's almost uh, is it two years at this point? But um, relative time scales. Uh, after after Prince died, I actually took like a real look at Prince's like back catalog, like at everything, because I wasn't really a Prince fan until he died. <laughs> you know, I I, I, yeah. I like I would listen to a Prince song if it was on the radio, and I would recognize you know the 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 bigger hits and so on but i i was never really that into prince and i never really got him and then when when he when he did die it was such a big reaction it was so big it was like clearly this very meaningful artist to a lot of people they kind of like was like there's something going on there there must be something deeper than i'm seeing like he's not just this like flashy bro that's really good at guitar is <laughs> clearly yeah. clearly he's a uh a, a a deeper, you know, artist than that. And so I like, okay, I'm going to start listening and I'm going to start, you know, really going through the things like all the way back to like the very early eighties. And, um, I was just amazed like the stuff going on in there and like the musical ideas and the, the ideas that I got and some of the like ways in which he would use bass and funk riffs that just blew my mind. And I was not used to. And, um, Influence not just like how I think about music, but how a sense of you know being extremely different and and like to the point that you look so distinctive, um, and but still being able to gain everybody's respect is like totally possible, right? Like you can be just ridiculously quirky and not at all like everybody else, but still clearly be like unbelievably top level like master of your craft like and he pulled it off right and in times where it shouldn't it, i'm sure it was not easy um on the topic of um standing out um, what is my next question is i'm working on these segues as you can tell my next question is what is something unusual or unexpected that people might not know about you Oh man! Besides playing the the crazy folk music, yeah. Besides um, I don't know that what what people might not know about me um, is, I I guess, you know, my background doesn't come up a whole lot in in terms of where I'm from. People, you know, I've I've noticed in America uh, have this very romanticized view of Ireland. <laughs> Where it's all these green fields and pastures and this these beautiful places and everybody's super friendly, which is true, and uh, and everybody drinks Guinness and and we have leprechaun mythology and all the rest and and that can be a really common view of Ireland, but it it's not at all what I grew up with. You know, I grew up in a inner city suburb. There were shootings on my street. <laughs> um, it it was. Um, you know, high unemployment times and uh, very, you know, kind of gritty. People were still great. You know, I really loved that community, and um, and I, I wouldn't have grown up anywhere else. But it it's very very different. Uh, and so when 
I tell people I'm Irish and my background, they have a very certain thing in mind that is not really close. <laughs> Fighting. It's hard to break out of these stereotypes, but I think you do break out of many stereotypes for like an engineer, for a person working at Amazon, for an Irish folk music. I think <laughs> some some of them I confirm <laughs> though. You know, I'm I'm, I'm pretty introverted. I've, I've got these big thick glasses on. <laughs> you know, there's there's definitely some that are uh, that that I absolutely confirm. Do you have any personal philosophies, beliefs, or ideas that you live your life to? Um, I think you know, always trying not to have regrets. Right, is it's probably the biggest one. That's the the simplest way to guide the decisions I make, um, and and you know that that helps you do the right thing even when it's hard, uh, which is an important personal personal philosophy. But um, I think you know we've covered a bit already, but always being willing to push out of your comfort zone and suck at something for a while. Uh, I decided a long time ago that I would always try to learn a new skill um, and always be in the phase where I suck at it. Um, sometimes that's been like learning a new language because I'm really bad at learning languages. Even though I grew up bilingual speaking Irish and English, but it hasn't helped. <laughs> like I, I'm still a really mm. slow learner when it comes to new language. And so I feel like if I'm always doing something, if there's some percentage of my time where I am a total noob um I will know what it's like to be the kid at the back of the class who is really struggling and that, that will make it easier to recognize and have empathy for and I think help me be more effective. Um, and since I started doing that, I've noticed that I, you know, that works, right? And it doesn't, like, I don't always even succeed at picking up the skills. Sometimes I just abandon these things like a year in contradicting my own advice there about <laughs> sticking with things it's a journey it's an <laughs> effort and sometimes you know maybe that's the right thing to do at that time so yeah look right right now i'm trying to learn how to do uh video editing which is unbelievably hard <laughs> it's like this is why i stick to audio i thought it was like download final cut pro and like yeah like a week later you're gonna be making these great no <laughs> it's really hard well if you do come out with the videos i hope that people can find them. If you are interested in people uh, contacting you or if people want to find out more about your work or reach out, what's a good place where they might find you? Uh, the best place is probably my Twitter handle. Like, Just look at Colmacci, C-O-L-M-M-A-C-C, and then I always have links from there. Got it. And my very last question before I let you go. Is there anything else you want to say to my audience? Any parting advice, thoughts? No, just stick with things. It's that simple sometimes. All right. Well, on that note, thanks you so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun, Colm. Thank you.